Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey, welcome everyone to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest to talk about financial independence and early retirement. On today's show, I'm excited to introduce Cal Newport. I've been a big fan of Cal's for many years now, and he's written some amazing books that have helped me a lot personally in getting things done that I really want to accomplish. And I think that's a big challenge for people that do walk away from work early in life because after you leave your job, the external motivation is gone. So then it's up to you to have the discipline to actually do all the things that you'd hope to do. And it's harder than it seems. And Cal's books have been really helpful to me in that regard. So I was excited to get him on the show because even though he doesn't write about early retirement specifically... Everything that he does write about is applicable to early retirees, and it's actually even more important for them. So without further delay, hey, Cal, thanks very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Brandon, it's my pleasure. So I've been a big fan of yours for many years now, uh, so this is a real pleasure to talk to you. And you have a new book out, which I'm always excited when you release something, but also part of me, I think, dies a little bit too, because (laughs) uh, you may not know this, but we both graduated in 2004 from college with... I, I assume you have a degree in computer science from your undergrad. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So we both we both graduated in 2004 with a degree in computer science. And yet you've gone on to, uh, and this is going to be a long list, so bear with me, but you went to grad school at MIT, got a PhD in electrical engineering, computer science, then you did two years postdoc at MIT. The, you've written six books and you became a professor at Georgetown, and you just got tenure, which a big congratulations for that. So yeah, it's anytime you release like a book, I'm like, wow, how does he do it? Um, the good news is you don't hide your secrets; you share them, which is what we're going to be talking about today, which is really exciting. But yeah, I it's always it's always like a bittersweet moment when it's like, oh, Cal's got a new book out, but then it's like, wow, I. I just made hummus today, and I was proud of that. No, I'm not anymore. <laughs> so. Well, if it, if it makes you feel better, I'm probably a lot more tired than you are. So it all kind of balances out. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I do get a lot of sleep, which is good. <laughs> but no, no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And we're going to go back to two your previous books as well, because I think there's some really interesting stuff. You don't write specifically for like the fire crowd, but there's so much that applies And I'm really excited to sort of dive into your previous two books, as well as your uh, current book, which has just changed my life since I read it uh, a month ago, which we'll talk about. So to launch into it, I I, I want to talk about passion, because that is something that you sort of talk about in So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is two books ago. And you say that pursuing your passion is sort of overrated. So could you just give a little rundown of why you say that? Right. So, so that book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, uh, that came out in 2012. So if you pin that to the timeline of my career, is essentially when I was at an important career inflection point. So I was just finishing up so at grad school plus the postdoc years, about to go into the academic job market, which if you do correctly, is going to be your first and last job. So I figured if there's any time, I really should understand the dynamics of how people really end up 
loving their work, this was a time when I was going to get a lot of leverage out of that knowledge. And so that's why I set out to write that book. I really wanted to know, you know, using my position as a, as an author and, and what that gains me access to to try to figure out what is, what is the research and what does sort of original journalism teach us about how people really end up loving what they're doing. And right away, it became clear that at the time, and I think even to today, the standard answer was, well, you should follow your passion. This was the core career advice that I, we still give out. And certainly back then was the, was the main career advice we gave out, which is career satisfaction is really a matching game. If you properly match what you do to a living to some sort of intrinsic pre-existing pre-inclination, you'll be happy. And if you don't get the match right, if you don't choose the right job, you're going to end up unhappy. That was the standard wisdom. But you, you start looking into this and it becomes clear really quickly that that's not really good advice. I mean, we don't really have a lot of evidence that that's, that's the case. And, and you know, we get into the weeds on it, but at a high level, there's two main issues with it. One, we don't have a lot of evidence that most people have pre-existing passions that they could easily identify and use to select a job. And so that advice is meaningless for them. And two, we don't have a lot of evidence that people's job satisfaction is strongly determined by the match of that job to a pre-existing interest. You know, there's a very rich literature on motivation, satisfaction, and meaning in the professional sphere, and very little of it has to do with matching that job to pre-existing traits. And so when you look at the research evidence, it turns out we have no real reason to believe that follow your passion is something that's actually going to lead most people to feeling passion for their work. And yet it's the main thing that we tell people. So I wrote a book saying that's a bad idea, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I remember that the launch, the idea I got on stage at Chris Grabeau's, uh World Domination Summit, which has a lot of passion. Oh, and, and I stood on stage in this big theater and I don't think they knew what I was going to be talking about. And I was like, follow your passion, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we all hear it. And it's terrible advice. <laughs> and you could, you could feel the, you know, the, the pin drop or what have you, or I guess I should say like the, the well-formatted moleskin journals drop <laughs> <laughs> from people's hands. It was a lot of fun. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's why I wrote that book is how do we end up getting happy in our work? Follow your passion. That's not going to cut it too simplistic. And instead you found that you actually get that pleasure and happiness from actually getting good at something. So it's a craftsman mindset versus a passion mindset. So rather than, yeah, think, oh, I need to find this perfect thing that my, my soulmate job or whatever, um, you instead just start working. And then as you get better at it, you start to enjoy it more. And you, you mentioned three separate things that are like key to having people love their work. And that's autonomy, competence and relatedness. So, you know, being able to do things on your own and get things done and then being good at what you're doing and then also working with others and being valued. So could you maybe talk a little bit about how you, how you stumbled across that and, you know, like some of the things that went into actually realizing that actually, no, working hard is what's going to make you the happiest? Yeah, well, the, the original source of that idea was actually where the title of the book comes from, which is this famous Steve Martin quote. He talks about this in Board Standing Up, his memoir. Uh, he says, you know, people always ask me. You know, how do I break into the entertainment industry? Like, what's the what's the secret? Like, what's the how do I make the right connections? What have you? And he says the answer that I give them it's never the answer they want to hear. I say, be so good they can't ignore you. And if you do that, all other good things will come. And that idea basically turns out to be more or less correct because it you know the traits that make a good job good are rare and valuable. People want them. And so the marketplace says, if you want these, you have to have something 
rare and valuable to offer in exchange. That's almost always skill, uh, some sort of skill that the market values. So as you get better at something, something that the market actually values, you get more leverage. You get more leverage about what you work on, when you work on, how you work on it, where you work on it. All these things that help build to satisfaction come from having to leverage and being good at something that's rare and valuable. And so when you then start talking to people, people who love what they do, and you say, not give me your advice, because if you ask people, just give me your advice, they'll just parrot what they've heard. They'll say, yeah, follow right. your passion. But say, what's your story? Almost always what you'll find is that they didn't have a pre-existing passion. They didn't know in advance what they were going to be doing with their life. But what they did do is get really good at something valuable. And that unlocked almost everything else. And so that's where the title came from, why I called the book So Good They Can't Ignore You. That's very good. That's a great title as well. Um, so for the whole early retirement movement thing that's you know sort of exploding right now, a lot of people are rushing to this finish line because you know maybe they feel like they don't have enough autonomy in their job and they want to just you know pursue that passion. But the trade-off is they're giving up you know what you call career capital, and they're competent at their job. They're you know relating to the all their colleagues, and they're giving that up to have autonomy in this potentially brand new space that is their quote unquote passion. And that doesn't seem like a recipe for happiness. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a big issue. I mean, I'm a longtime follower of the FIRE community. And I know you've talked about this. And I know Pete's talked about this as well. I think it's a really important point. What is it that you're trying to get to? And so this notion that you have these, these passions, and if you could just get more time to spend on them, you're going to be very happy, really doesn't match what the, what the research tells us. Which is, you know, that's not a major source of satisfaction. It's just that I'm doing something that I have a pre-existing interest for. You need this sense of uh, impact. You need this sense of autonomy, this sense of, of competence. And so it's almost as if the, the literature would say, you know, what are the fire variations that we should all consider? Uh, is one in which you get very good at something. And because of that, you gain a lot of autonomy over how you work on it, when you work on it, and why you work on it. And because of your frugality at savings rate are able to actually then fill in the gap. So support these sort of more uh, bespoke custom fit, uh, custom fit situations. Uh, but almost always, if you're doing something at a very high level and you're very good at it, that's a huge source of satisfaction. And so I don't know if we need a new term for this. Uh, you'd call it focused <laughs> fire or something like that, right? That's all we need, right? Is more, more terms. But this more notion words. that, yeah, you're doing a small amount of, you know, you're working on something you're very good at at a high level and probably actually getting paid a very good rate at it, but on a schedule that's entirely your control. Uh, that type of autonomy plus impact is something that, and competence is something that shows up a lot when I was researching that book, is that a lot of people who are really happy are very good at something. And because of that, they really control what they do. So like I talk about a database developer, for example, that does the six months on, six months off type mm. schedule, which I thought was really interesting. She'll work six months on an engagement and then spend six months doing something else. So, you know, she learned scuba diving one of those six months. She got her pilot's license. She went back to uh, her family's from Vietnam. So she spent one of those six month periods back in Vietnam. And those type of models seemed really sustainable and compelling for trying to build something that's remarkable. And so I think that is a really big piece of caution that for those of you who are in the fire community and feel like if you just had time to work on your quote unquote passion, you would find all the satisfaction. The reality might be a little bit more complicated. 
So you've mentioned that getting good at something is going to lead to fulfillment. So that's actually where your next book, Deep Work, comes in. And you say deep work is the superpower of the 21st century. So could you maybe just uh, give a little rundown on that whole project? Because that was the first book I actually read from you and absolutely loved it. Yeah. So, I mean, it, in essence, it was a response to reactions to so good they can't ignore you, which is, okay, if we buy your premise, how do we become so good at something we can't be ignored? And the answer seems to be at least a knowledge pursuit. So in cognitive pursuits, deep work is very important. Deep work is by term for essentially concentrating without distraction. And so I made this economic argument in that book that said deep work is becoming increasingly valuable in the knowledge sector of the economy at the same time that due to technological innovations, it's becoming increasingly rare. People are getting worse at concentrating. People are dedicating less time to concentration. And so I said, this is a classic supply and demand situation. Something's becoming more valuable at the same time as becoming more rare. If you are one of the few to systematically cultivate your ability to concentrate intensely without distraction, you're going to get a huge competitive advantage. Absolutely. And from that book, I took away at least, I took away many good habits from it, but the best one has been just shutting down my email um, for the entire day. So I like I will get lost in flow, which is also something that you talk about in in the book. Um, and I will just be like blasting through stuff for hours and just the time will slip by. And then I will check my email after it and forget that it was closed the whole time. And, uh, you know, there'll be maybe 20 emails that would have just completely destroyed that that period of work had it been open and pinging and, you know, just checking it. So, yeah, it's been hugely beneficial for me. There's a great um, equation in there where you say high quality work equals time spent times the intensity of focus. And that seems to be your secret as far as how you can actually, you, you rarely work after 5 p.m. and you rarely work on weekends. And yet you did all that amazing stuff that I already said at the beginning of the podcast. So what does is, what is your deep work look like in, in, in reality? And is that still true? Or are you still not working in the evenings and weekends? Uh, yeah, no, that, that's essentially true. Uh, I found with the the publicity campaign for my most recent book, I've had to add uh, an early morning work session because the terrible thing about publicity tours is that there are things that are scheduled sprinkled throughout the day. Mm. And so it, it eats up, it eats up the opportunity to do uninterrupted deep work. But it's actually kind of useful for me because taking one month or six weeks and doing a publicity tour, it gives me a good comparison of just how much more you can produce when you're able to manipulate your schedule so that you batch the non-concentrated work and you batch the concentrated work. So you could go long periods of time without distraction and then do the non-deep work. That's an incredibly effective formula. Uh, a formula that does not work well is when you sprinkle your day with appointments. So like, you'll, sure. let me do a coffee, let me jump on a call, then we try to work for 30 minutes, then let me do this meeting, then let me do another couple minutes. Uh, that turns out to be hugely cognitively inefficient because uh, a big secret cost that people don't factor is that context switching is very uh, impactful on your ability to concentrate. And so people think, for example, uh, glancing at an email inbox shouldn't really hurt that much because you're not multitasking. You're mainly working on something hard, but you're just glancing temporarily at an email inbox. How can two minutes really hurt? But there's a cost to that context switch. And so when you come back from that email inbox, it might be 15, 20, 30 minutes until your mind has cleared out all of the attention residue from seeing those messages. And until it does, you're working at a cognitive deficit. And so essentially what I've experienced in the last six weeks, what I think a lot of knowledge workers experience every day is that 
we've structured our work in such a way that we're essentially uh, having a self-imposed cognitive handicap. It's like we're taking a reverse nootropic that makes us dumber. And so when you get to get away from that, like you, like you've talked about you're doing, and spend hours and hours without distraction, it feels like a superpower because your brain is actually able to function in the way that it was meant to function without all this extra cost. In the book, you also sort of go into like these are some of the quotes that I had written down years ago when I wrote it. Um, Relaxation does not result in happiness. People are happier at work. More flow experiences equal more life satisfaction. And flow happens when your mind's stretched, when you're trying to accomplish something worthwhile and difficult. Um, So all of that, again, does not (laughs) bode well for the whole early retirement thing. So maybe can you talk about early retirement in in the context of all the stuff that you learned when you're putting deep work together? Right. So when I was doing deep work, I had pulled from some other sources to make this argument that people actually like doing hard, meaningful things. And this notion that we want nothing to do or that we need to just sit down and veg, we need that type of relaxation is actually something just that's not really that true, that there's sort of famous thinkers and philosophers going back all the way to Aristotle through Arnold Bennett more recently, who all say, we want to be doing important things. In fact, that could be energizing not draining. We don't need to put our feet up and drink a beer while watching the TV. Uh, So when I was working on my new book, one of the ways I explored that topic is I said, let me spend some time talking to members of the FIRE community, because that's a great case study in how do we most fulfillingly uh, spend our free time. Because if you look at people who who have recently achieved early retirement, you find people that suddenly have lots of free time, uh, and they also seem to be people that are that are pretty driven and self-aware because it takes a lot of drive and self-awareness to actually get to financial independence at an early age. And so they're more likely to aggressively seek out what's going to make them happiest. And the observation I made, I talk about uh, Mr. Money Mustache and I, and I talk to the Thameses, to the Frugalwoods. And I said, look at these examples. What do these people do after they get at a young age, you know, freedom to do what they want with their time? They fill it with activity. You know, that was their instinct, right? I mean, like Pete does not like television. Pete does not (laughs) like sitting around and looking at the internet. The Thames is, you know, Nate and Elizabeth are out there, you know, chopping wood and and (laughs) snow blowing and like doing all this crazy manual labor, clearing out their paths or this or that. Uh, And it's like, look, they have complete choice, right? This is not, they're not forced to do this. They're not on a colonial homestead. You know, know, Pete does not have to pour concrete or weld, Right. But they, they're the right examples because they had complete autonomy. Uh, what did they end up doing? Hard things, hard, interesting things. And so I think the fire community really underscores this point that we don't really need lots of relaxation. What we need is interesting, meaningful, hard activity. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was such a nice surprise seeing Mr. Money Mustache and Mrs. Frugalwoods in, in your book. That was, uh, I was not expecting that, but it was, yeah, I was like, oh, this is, yeah, absolutely perfect examples of how to do leisure right. Um, what, what types of, you know, quality leisure do you regularly enjoy? Um, obviously you're trying not to work after five, so you got potentially quite a big chunk of time after work. Yeah, you would think so, except for I have this other activity called Three Young Boys. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually have, uh, at the moment, very little leisure time. Uh, Though when I do get leisure time, so one thing is I read a lot. Uh, And and this is kind of the reality of being a nonfiction writer, especially the idea space, is that your main ammunition is things that you've read. So you have to read all the time, five or six Mm -hmm. books at a time, constant reading. So I I read uh, quite a bit. And also I've gotten back into guitar played 
I used to play guitar. I was in band since I was, you know, eight or nine years old. But it was actually doing the research for the most recent book, which was really underscoring that high quality leisure is key for satisfaction that drove me to take those out of the closet. Because that's a quintessential example of a high skill leisure activity that requires concentration. It's not easy to do, but it's still something you do for no other reason than just the pleasure of doing it, which is a recipe for a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. I want to, before we, I definitely am really excited to talk about digital minimalism because that's the new book. And but I want to, there's one more thing that I had written down for deep work. And that was um, skillful management of attention is the key to a good life. Um, so could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Because that's a, I really like that phrase. Well, you know, your world is what you pay attention to. Because there, there's way more stimuli coming in through your senses than you could actually notice in a conscious sense, right? So what you actually choose to pay attention to defines sort of your experience of the world. And so one of the reasons why people who do a lot of deep work, and so that part of the book, I talk about this uh, metalsmith, Rick Furrier, who's out, I believe, in Wisconsin, and he, he's a specialist in swords, and he, he actually uh, is a specialist in ancient methods. And uh, I talked about this, watching this documentary of him building a sword using sort of Viking methodology, and, and he ended up getting in touch with me after the book came out, so it was cool to talk to him. But he's somebody who spends most of his days in deep concentration, you know, looking at metal, pounding on metal, looking at the color of the metal, trying to figure out where the impurities are, like just really concentrated physical labor. And he's someone who seems really happy and fulfilled. And you know, part of the argument there is because he's focusing his attention on a small number of things that are hard and meaningful to him. If on the other hand, you say, let me take that attention and stretch it out over lots of social media and emails and constantly web surfing, like expose yourselves to lots of things, much of which might be emotional or boring or upsetting or something that triggers some outrage, your world becomes one in which you're emotionally drained and upset and outraged. You know, like what you pay attention to really affects your how you how you view the world and therefore how you feel. And so it's a hidden benefit of deep work that when you spend more time focusing on a small number of important things, your world just seems more meaningful and interesting than if you instead take that same time and scatter it among lots of different things, especially things that are superficial or low quality. Absolutely. And that leads perfectly into digital minimalism because so deep work was more about, you know, how to do really good work and not be distracted by things like email and things like that. But Obviously, people's personal lives are so distracted. Digital minimalism is about your personal life. And as part of the book, you have this thing called a digital detox. So before I tell my personal story about how that has affected me, maybe just tell the audience about what that actually is. Right. Well, I mean, just briefly, the way the book came about was in part deep work readers were saying exactly that. They were saying, okay, maybe I buy these claims about technology in our professional life, but what's going on in our personal life is even more important. There's, e there's even worse things happening in our personal life. And some of it was about it's affecting their work, but a lot of it was about my life is just worse. Mm. You know, because I'm spending so much time looking at these screens, so much more time than I want to, uh, and because I'm feeling more algorithmically manipulated by what I see, I think the quality of my life outside of work is being diminished by these habits. And this is a problem and it got really bad the last couple of years and we need some sort of solution. And so 
That's where digital minimalism came from. And basically what I said is, let's take this ancient idea, this ancient idea of minimalism, which has been around forever, like back to the ancients through Thoreau, into the modern minimalist movement, into the fire community, which I really see as something that came out of the sort of neo-minimalism movement that started in the first decade of the 2000s online. Um, so it's an idea that's been around a long time. Mary Kondo is an application of minimalism, the people's right. physical clutter. And basically minimalism says you're almost always better off focusing your attention uh, on a small number of things that you know for sure are really valuable. That's almost always better than trying to scatter that attention among lots of things that are potentially of lower value. And so for some people, this is kind of a new idea. I think for people in the fire community, this is the whole thing. <laughs> this is the whole game, right? I mean, th this minimalism is the whole game, is that you're trying to maximize the time you can spend on the things that are most important. So this is actually probably uh, pretty straightforward or old news for your listeners. But I was basically saying, let's bring that to your digital life. So instead of just having this clutter of all these different sort of digital metaphorical possessions that you downloaded or signed up for randomly, they're now all pulling out your time and, it, and, and the, the clutter of it all is making you feel overwhelmed and unhappy. Why don't you empty out the metaphorical closet and rebuild your digital life from scratch? Except for this time, only add back things in that are give you really big wins. You have a very specific reason to use it. And so the digital declutter is my suggestion for how to do that. And at a very high level, it basically says, step away from it all. So all the technology in your personal life that, that's optional enough that you can step away from without it causing major harm, do so for 30 days. Now, part of that is a detox, right? I mean, it will help reduce the compulsive urge to check a screen. Uh, the people who have done this, and, I, and I've run over 1,600 people through this experiment so far, they report that there's about a 7 to 14-day window after which you really lose the compulsion to look at your screen. But that's just the first step to it. So the other thing you're supposed to do during these 30 days is get back in touch with what you're really about, what you value, what you actually want to spend your time outside of work doing. I mean, this is hard self-reflection. This actually gives you the space from all the online chatter to, to answer these questions. And then when the 30 days are over, you don't just go back to what you did before. You start from scratch. You say, okay, before one of these tools or any tool makes its way back into my personal digital life, I have to have a really strong story for how this is the best way to use technology to help something I really value. And if it can't pass that high threshold, I'm okay missing out on it. Just like, you know, someone in the fire community is saying like, yeah, it might be nice, I guess, to have the panini press or whatever, but it's not at the core of what I value. So I'm okay missing out on that small bit of value. It's say do the same thing, except for now, instead of a panini press, it might be Instagram or your habit of checking online news. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, it's been the most effective thing for me. So like over the years, I've pared down because I'm like, uh, you know, I didn't work this hard to now just spend all of these hours just like refreshing the same web page and stuff like that. So over the years, I've cut back, I've like unfollowed people and like, you know, hidden things from Facebook so that it's just like only like the core, like friends that I want to keep in touch with and things like that. But there's such a big difference just going cold turkey versus oh well you know it's okay like i keep it i don't do it until after 5 p.m and um you know like i said i have only minimal people i'm following and things like that it's completely different it it changed just how i interact with it completely so i got your book and it was right before we were going on a ski trip and i read through the whole book and I was like, all right, well, this is this is perfect. We're going on a ski trip, so I don't care about technology at all if I'm going to be in the mountains having fun. So this is like my 
perfect like introduction to it. And it was great because I didn't miss it. So I didn't have to go through that sort of withdrawal that I'm sure a lot of people would when they do this. But then when I came back, it was just much easier not to even touch it. And then since I have, you know, like Mad Fientist Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, as far as like Mad Fientist is concerned, I was like, all right, well, on Saturdays, I can just check it, check everything once and see how it is. And then that's it. And one, the thing that surprised me most is how little I missed, even after one week, two weeks, three weeks, like I was able to get cut up so quickly Whereas that would have been, you know, maybe a couple hours every night, maybe just refreshing the same web page, which is the thing that really got me about it. Just like the the like compulsiveness of it. I'm not, I don't have an addictive personality at all, but I felt like I wasn't in control of that refresh, and that really made me sad. But yeah, it was just that was the biggest thing. It was like, whoa, I can still get all the information that I think I'm missing. And yet it takes me 30 minutes and my brain feels like a normal brain, not some crazy brain. And is that something you found from all the 1600 people that you uh, ran through this experiment? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is something that uh, the social media companies hate (laughs) because it it really is true that once you start optimizing. So that's a big part of this digital minimalist experiment. When something comes back into your life, it's not just a binary question of what do I use? You also ask how and when do I use it? So you try to optimize, you know, how do I get most of the value? If something's really important, how do I get that important value while minimizing the cost? And so a lot of digital minimalists that still need to engage in, let's say, social media for professional reasons, do something like you're talking about. It's not on their phone. They go on like Sunday night or Saturday morning. It takes them 30 minutes and they get 99% of the value without the 50 minutes a day of constant refreshing. And, and this is something that social media companies hate because the way they like to argue this point is basically, and I know this because I famously have never had a social media account and for years have sort of been in the public eye, writing op-eds, going on the radio, doing debates about social media is not as important as we think. And the strategy of the opponents always used to be the same. They would say, here's a reason why it's important. Like, okay, here's an artist who uh, publicizes his work on social media. Therefore, argument over, stop thinking about it, you know, put it on your phone and just start using it all the time. They, they want these gateways into their ecosystem. So like, oh, you want to see your grandkid. You know, a, a producer at a TV show was telling me this story earlier this week that her mom, you know, got on Facebook in her 70s to see pictures of her grandkid. And now she's on this thing constantly, you know, whatever it is, just hours a day. That's the model, right? Have some gateway utility and then hope people don't think about optimization and then, and then you, you stag them into the ecosystem. Uh, and so that type of optimization is important. And I also want to add, I mean, you're picking up the importance of actually just saying, start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I want to emphasize, you know, that's really unusual for me to do that type of writing. I mean, I write advice books, but I, I sort of work in this smart self-help type uh, market where I don't normally do things like a 30-day process or a six-step whatever, right? I mean, that's I don't usually write like that. Yeah. But it was so important. I mean, it was so clear to be researching this topic and working with people. You had to do it. It had to be the 30 days. You had to step away. It just worked so much better than trying to get at this nibbling around the edges or from the top down. And finally, the analogy that made me understand this is that it's the same as in health and fitness, that once we got these highly palatable processed foods in the second half of the 20th century, we had a huge rise in obesity. And the forces were so powerful that just good advice, good intentions, small tips didn't work. 
you couldn't just tell someone, you know, eat less or eat healthier. You couldn't just put up, you know, the food pyramid in the school nurse's office and assume the problem was going to go away. It was, it, the forces were too strong. And so if you think now, who are the healthiest people you know? Almost certainly there's someone who has like a very strong philosophy that they believe in, like they're vegan or paleo or, you know, they're a CrossFit fanatic, but they have some sort of philosophy that's based on their values and they believe in it. And it helps them make consistent decisions. And so my aha, my aha moment was ah, technology forces are strong enough that we need something like that as well. Mm-hmm. You have to have something really strong, a sort of dramatic break with what you're doing if you're going to succeed. Just like it's hard to give up bad eating by just saying, well, maybe I should eat less chips or maybe I should try to eat more vegetables. You know, That's not enough. It's the same thing with the tech. I mean, we've all read the same articles about turning off notifications or, or not having the phone in your room at night. And, you know, everyone writes these blog posts of like, I've cracked it. Here's my yeah. new thing, right? Like I take a Shabbat once a week where I don't look at my phone or, or you know, whatever, like all these small tips. And yet you see them on Twitter. <laughs> you know, they're on there 500 times a day or whatever. And so, you know, it is unusual for me to to have something like 30 days and this and that. But it really seems to work, just like with physical possessions. You know, Mary Kondo is successful because she says you can't just kind of get rid of some stuff. You have to empty the whole damn closet. The whole thing has to be empty, and then you rebuild it from scratch. Just bringing back in what's important. There's a reason why you know she's doing that with physical possessions is because you have to have dramatic break. And so I think your experience is quite common, actually. No, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think that was incredibly important. And yeah, like I said, that's the only thing that's really changed things as I've tried to cut this thing out of my life. And uh, yeah, it's made it's made a huge difference. So when you're researching this book, you obviously looked into the downsides of social media and the social media addiction and like how it's playing out on college campuses. And I think we could all feel that something's not quite right. Like it's not a good thing. Um, But can you maybe talk about some of the things that you learned? Well, I think one of the more interesting things is that this model of phone use that we have today, this constant companion model in which you're you're constantly looking at your phone throughout the day, we incorrectly think about that as somehow being fundamental to the technology, right? Like, yeah, this is just what you do with a smartphone. That's what this invention is for. But if you look closer, you find out that actually – uh, that behavior is largely contrived, and it was introduced into our culture primarily from the major social media platforms. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happens if, as you look into this is you know, Facebook took the lead in this uh, because they were early. They're getting to a point where their IPO was uh, coming up, and they really had to get their revenue numbers up, or they weren't going to get the type of valuation that was going to get their early seed investors the, the 100x returns that they were expecting. And so they, they had this big issue. How do we get our revenue numbers way up? They had a pretty good user base, but they weren't making enough money. And this is because social media, until this point, had actually been a more static experience. You would post things about yourself. People would post things about themselves. You would occasionally go on a check and say, hey, does anyone I know? And say, you know, maybe they've updated something about themselves, like they're on vacation or their relationship status changed. And it, it didn't really engender a lot of engagement, at least not on the level that they needed to make a lot of money. And so they re-engineered the social media experience to not be about posting and reading other people's posts, but to instead be about this constant stream of social approval indicators. Mm. And so we think about things like the like button as always being there, but that wasn't there. Right. The original Facebook didn't have that. Fredster didn't have that. MySpace didn't have that at first. That was actually you know introduced and widely copied because what that created was social approval indicators that you could see about yourself every time you tap the app. So now it's not just, hey, did one of my friends change their relationship status? It's instead, 
Did anyone like the thing I just posted? Right. And then they spent a lot of money, for example, on auto-tagging photos, right? I mean, why would they spend so much money? That's a really hard problem. I'm a computer scientist, I can tell you, you know, that, that's, a, that's an image recognition problem. It's very hard, a vision problem. They spent a lot of money so that they could figure out, okay, the person in this photo that you just posted is branded. So can we send them a note saying that you've been tagged? Why did they spend that money? Because it was another social approval indicator. So now when you tap the app, you might see, you know, Cal tagged you in a photo. Someone was thinking about you. So now you have a constant stream of social approval indicators coming at you throughout the day. It's things about you. So that's incredibly irresistible. And it's intermittent. Sometimes when you tap the app, you will get some more likes or tags. And sometimes you won't. And in fact, some people like the NYU professor Adam Alter, the whistleblower Tristan Harris claimed that Facebook and Instagram were both artificially batching likes and hearts and favorites to make the stream more intermittent, right? Because they they don't want just a constant steady stream. They want it to be sometimes you get a butt, sometimes you don't. They learned about that from Las Vegas Casino Gambling, where decades earlier when slot machines were computerized and so that they could actually hard-coded reinforcement schedules, they did all this research in Las Vegas to figure out what's the optimal schedule of rewards and how big should those rewards be to keep people pulling the lever way more than they want to. And so they learned from those ideas and basically re-engineered the whole social media experience into essentially a slot machine about you, social approval indicators coming at you intermittently in your phone, wherever you are. And that's what created this behavior of, I always look at my phone. So there's nothing fundamental about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing fundamental about an iPhone that says you need to look at this all the time. I write about how that was not the original vision at all. I even talked to the original engineering lead from the original iPhone to confirm this had nothing to do with that. It was basically the social media companies reprogrammed us to do this thing. And they tried to trick us into thinking, well, this is just what it means to live in a high-tech culture. What do you want to do? Get rid of your phone? Do you want to get rid of the internet? <laughs> They're always giving these disdainful <laughs> right. pushbacks, hoping that we don't notice that there's nothing fundamental about smartphones or the internet or the social internet or any of these great innovations that requires us to look at a screen two to three hours a day. The only person that serves is essentially the stockholders of these companies and a, a small number of realtors in the Northern California area. I mean, that's basically who's being helped by that behavior. It's not at all fundamental. And so it's so fascinating to learn that, that this is why people are so upset. It's not like, yeah, this is what this tech is. It's not like, okay, cars are really convenient, but a side effect is there's going to be car crashes and people are going to die. But you know what? What are we going to do? Because cars are really convenient. We don't actually need the cost of companion model. There's really no value that gives us. There's nothing that we have to do that for. Uh, in order to to get some sort of deep value. It's just relatively arbitrary. And I think that's why people are getting fed up. Because they're saying, I'm doing this for no real good reason and feeling manipulated because of it. And it's also harming people as well. It's not even neutral. It's not even like, oh, I'm doing this, but uh, this isn't, I could be doing something else. It's it's actually, you know, I think you mentioned like college campuses are seeing a high increase in like mental health problems. And that's because our, our brains aren't meant to be slot machines like this and having these like weird sort of social interactions, but not like really proper ones. So can you talk about, you know, what they're finding um, on college campuses and how it's affecting students and young people? Well, you know, I I first heard about this years ago, like three or four years ago, I was doing an event on a college campus and I was walking across campus with the head of the mental health services. This at a well-known university. And she was saying, you know, Everything changed recently. Uh, We used to get a relatively small number of students coming in with mental health issues, and it was a wide variety. You know, the standard sort of distribution of mental health issues you see 
uh, in society as large. And she said, yeah, a couple of years ago, that all changed. Now we have many, many more students coming in than we've ever had before. And it's all anxiety and anxiety related disorders. And I asked her, so what's causing that? And she didn't even pause. She's like, smartphones. Right? Wow. That's the difference. Like the students who came in who had smartphones as teenagers, they're here. And three years ago, you know, at this point, you know, three years ago, you know, smartphone was still new and most of them hadn't had it before college. We didn't have these issues. Then the research caught up on this. So Jean Twidge has this uh, big new book out called iGen. She's an expert, right? Jean Twidge is a professor who's an expert in essentially measuring uh, attributes that change over generations. So she she measures how certain things change from generation to generation. That's That's what she does. And the rise in mental health issues, and in particular, anxiety and anxiety-related disorders, were literally off the chart in that she had never seen a jump so high from one generation to the next on any attribute that had ever been measured over any generation that they'd ever studied. Oh, and wow. where that split happened was between the millennials and Gen Z. And, and what defined the difference between Gen Z and millennials is that Gen Z had widespread smartphone usage starting in their early adolescence. And, you know, they looked at a lot of different explanations and all of them have basically began to shake out as, as not being a good alternative. And the only signal that's remained strong is that it's, it's smartphones, the social media that it delivers. And it's not just anxiety and anxiety related disorders. It's the corresponding hospitalizations for self-harm and suicide attempts went right up, right up with the anxiety, anxiety related disorders. And so, you know, I talk about them in the book as being the digital canary in the coal mine because they're taking this behavior that we're all doing, but they push it to an extreme. So uh, Gen Z is a good way to measure what type of effects you have as you spend more and more time looking at a screen as opposed to engaging in the real world. And when you take the generation that's basically spending all their discretionary time looking at the screen, we see massive, massive issues with mental health. And so you and I, we're a little bit older. We don't look at our screens that much, but that's a good experiment. Mm -hmm. And, and, the, and the, the message we get out of this experiment is that our brain is certainly not meant for this behavior and, and there is consequences. And so uh, I think for people who use it a lot, but not as much as Gen Z, what they have is this persistent background hub of anxiety that they've just come to accept as that's just our normal state of affairs. But it's actually not. It's your brain crying out for help saying, I'm not supposed to be doing this type of high octane, low bit rate digital interaction all day. This isn't what the brain is supposed to be doing. It's it's the sort of cognitive equivalent of having a pain in your knee because you're carrying too much weight. Uh, this is our brains cried out for help. This is not natural. You should spend less time doing this. Yeah, and like I said, just the the change in myself just over the last month has been incredible. So definitely recommend people check out the book and go through the whole you know the digital declutter and everything. And especially for the fire crowd, it's like you don't want to work this hard to then get all this freedom and then just spend it, you know, clicking refresh on Facebook or whatever. Right. So. Which, which I want to note is a, I think a serious issue, you know, for the, the fire crowd to think about is because when I wrapped this big experiment with all the people who went through this declutter, what was clear is that it's actually really hard to fill your time when you don't have this. Like that's not trivial. You don't want to take that lightly. Uh, a lot of people have really used the distraction of the screen as a crutch, right? You know, it, it, it prevents them from having to, face the void or face themselves or face their own thoughts or answer the hard question of like, what do I want to do? What do I find meaning doing? And so a lot of people, especially younger people who did the declutter had a really, really hard time, especially that first day, you know, like, what am I supposed to do when I don't have this to click and look on? And so I think that's a, uh, 
I talk a lot in the book about how you develop and the importance of developing high quality analog leisure activities, basically getting really serious about this is what I really want to do with my time. And this is, this is really important. Like Mr. Money Mustache. That's why, you know, that's why I had him blurb the book is because he's the guy who thinks a lot about what do I want to do with my time, right? And, and, you know, for him, he really needs to use his hands and build things. And that's very, very important. But he thought a lot about this. And the Frugal Woods thought a lot about this too. They wanted to be outside. Uh, they wanted to be in nature. They wanted to be manipulating, you know, nature, the natural world and, and engaging. And this was very important to them. They got that straight before they added all this free time to their lives. And so I definitely learned this looking at this book is that it's harder than you think if you haven't been working on it to figure out what to do with your life if you don't have a screen. And so you're absolutely right that if you if you get financial independence tomorrow, but you haven't thought about any of this, you are almost certainly going to spend way too much of that time looking at your screen. And it's just going to make you less happy. It's going to make you anxious. Right. You're not going to be happy about it. Uh, so it's hard work to figure out what do I want to do instead, but it's work that's really worth doing. And to the point where I even recommend the young people in particular, do that hard work before you do the digital clutter because it could be that scary. You know, mm, otherwise right. it could be that scary that first day you say, I have a whole evening and I have those screens to look at. It could be really, really scary. And I know it sounds trivial, but it's, it's really not. I mean, th- these are hard issues. And so it's really important to figure out what you want to do because these screens have been filling in for an answer to that question much more than people realize until they're forced to confront it. One of the big advantages of never having a social media account is we have a drive to be social. And so if like me, you're not on social media, this means you actually do the work of like, okay, I have to go find people. Like I got to get, you know, a family member on the phone. I got to set up events. I want to, you know, I, I set up my porch a lot. Uh, you know, I have a porch in this small town where I live and we're in the sort of the center of town. And so I just, you know, maybe a half dozen neighbors will come by at some point, you know, during the evening if I'm out there and we could just talk to them. Oh, that's so important. And one of the big secret costs of social media is that, it tricks the frontal cortex, like the, the very recent part of your brain into thinking, oh, you're really social. You've been talking right. to people all day, right? I mean, you, you said happy birthday to 30 people. You've been DMing people on Twitter. Like you're very, very social. But a big point I make in the book is that most of the rest of your brain, the part of your brain that has evolved to be this high power social computer over hundreds of thousands of years, doesn't recognize an emoji or happy <laughs> birthday and ASCII characters it doesn't recognize that as socializing. And that's why we get these paradoxical research studies that show that the more people use social media, the more likely they are to be lonely. Mm. It's because it displaces the real world conversation and it tricks you enough into thinking you're being social that you're like, okay, I guess I'm good. But but the rest of your brain's like, no, you're not. That's not actually socializing. And so I I think part of why I was excited to talk to the the fire crowd is that uh, you guys are willing to consider drastic ideas. It doesn't mean that you'll do it if you don't think it's a good idea, but like to you, it's not a big, it's not a big deal. The notion of doing something that's different or drastic. And so mm-hmm. like, if you don't need social media for your professional life, consider quitting, uh, yeah, <laughs> consider it just walking away, right? It, it forces you into so many other activities that are, that are beneficial. Uh, you can still blog. I'm a, I'm a big blogging fan. And, and I love the fact that so much of the fire community has remained blog centric as opposed mm-hmm. to just migrating into sort of, uh, you know, just into the large social media platforms, sort of a uh, infibra sort of conversation. It's actually still very blog centric, which I love, which I think is a great medium. Uh, but if, if you're interested in that idea, at the very least, I suggest watching this TED talk I did a few years ago called Quit Social Media. 
<laughs> I kind of make my whole I make my make my whole pitch about why you should consider quitting altogether. And so I'm, I'm hoping to plant some of these seeds into the minds of your listeners that taking drastic steps in your technological life can have drastic benefits, just like taking drastic steps in your financial life can have these drastic benefits. I mean, they're connected. The more drastic the steps, the more drastic the improvement that you you might actually end up with. Yeah, I can't can't agree more, and that's definitely been my experience. So I highly recommend you check out. I'll, I'll link to the TED Talk in the show notes, and also all the books that we talked about. But it's been fantastic. How I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been a big treat. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to obviously ask you the question I ask everyone: uh, What's one piece of advice you give to somebody on pursuing financial independence? And this could definitely, obviously, not be financial related, and it could be maybe more like maybe something to think about if you're thinking that early retirement is what you're striving for, because obviously you've done a lot of research into that. So what would your one piece of advice be? Uh, I mean, going back to so good, they can't ignore you. My advice would be that skill is your greatest weapon. Uh, So if you relentlessly hone a skill that is very valuable, that is like your most, your strongest weapon in trying to give yourself financial options. You can generate more money. Uh, you can generate much more autonomy and leverage over how you generate that money. You get much more, you know, flexibility about when and how you work. It, it really is like a magic elixir for career satisfaction is being really, really good at something. Even if that requires a sort of in the desert apprenticeship type period where you're really just in the woodshed doing the practicing. I mean, there's a reason why it's so good they can't ignore you. I spend time with professional guitar player. <laughs> like, let me just describe what it's like watching a professional guitar player practicing. That's what it should be like when you're trying to build up a skill, you know, <laughs> in the knowledge world. Uh, but I'm a huge booster in skill. I think that sometimes gets lost. You know, it could get lost in the conversations of, you know, spreadsheets and savings rates to try to push things out is that the one lever that you also could give you this huge, huge return is the better you are at something that the market values, just the more control you have on over almost all those factors. And so uh, that's my one piece of advice is look at your skill as one of the most important things that you could improve and leverage to gain financial independence. That's great. And it'll increase your happiness and your satisfaction with life too, which is a excellent added bonus. So yeah, you can't go yeah. wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. So thanks so much, Cal. This has been great. So obviously you're not on social media, so people can find you at calnewport.com. Um, and then obviously I'll link to the TED Talk and all the books. Yeah, yeah. Calnewport.com. I've been blogging there for for over a decade. Uh I've watched the fire movement sort of emerge over the last 10 years and have been a, a, a pretty big fan of it. So I you know, appreciate this chance to actually uh, come on your podcast and reach this audience because I think we're kindred spirits. I mean, oh, if there's absolutely. anyone out there that I think this digital minimalism type ideas might immediately make sense for, it's probably uh, it's probably the people in this community. So, so this was exciting for me and, and uh, thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's uh, the exact audience that will uh, will soak this stuff up. So thank you so much again. And yeah, hopefully I'll uh, see you at some point and can buy you a beer to thank you for coming on the show. All right. Look forward to it. I'll hold you to it. All right. Thanks. Thanks. God, bye. Finance.